been here the past couple weeks, you know that we recently began an exciting um, and pretty intriguing sermon series titled God is Stranger. Uh, we've been examining how God often is not who, excuse me, who we think he is. Um, he sometimes doesn't respond or act in the manner that we think he should or perhaps that we hope he would. He's unpredictable. Sometimes he does some strange things. Other times he kind of feels like a stranger to us. And so far we looked at the Apostle Paul, who was one of the most devout religious men in his day. And we looked at his first encounter with Christ. Um, and the first words spoken from his mouth were, who are you, Lord? Paul thought he knew who God was, but he was clueless. We looked at the past two weeks studying the life of Abraham and how in God's first conversation with Abraham, he asked the 75-year-old to pack his bags and move to a foreign land. Leave everything you know, leave your comfort, and go to this foreign land. It's kind of a strange request, especially in a first conversation, right? We studied the story of the strangers coming to visit Abraham and his family and how he was very hospitable to them. And it turns out that those strangers were actually God undercover. And this story, along with the many others that we've looked at, challenge us to consider where are we looking for God? Where are we looking for God? Are we looking for him where we least expect him, when we least expect him? Could we be overlooking God right now, perhaps by avoiding certain individuals? Could God be testing our faith by exposing us to the suffering of others to see how we will respond? And so today we're going to continue on our journey of um, this whole God is stranger concept. So if you will open your Bibles with me to Genesis 25, Genesis 25, 21. Um, it should be page 22 if you're using a pew Bible. And just to give a little context, a little background, uh, the Isaac that we're going to be reading about was the son of Abraham. So we're moving from Abraham to his son Isaac to Isaac's son Jacob. Genesis 25, starting in verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? She went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, uh, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skilled hunter, a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew, I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. 
So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Kind of, kind of a strange story. So in this story, we have Isaac and Rebekah, who we didn't read about it, but they were married when Isaac was 40 years old. So it took them two decades to become pregnant, okay? That's a long time. That's a long time to wait. And not only does God give them one child, but two. Imagine raising twin boys starting at the age of 60. Yeah. Ain't nobody got time for that, right? That sounds exhausting, right? So, these twins, too, could not have been more polar opposites. The oldest son, Esau, uh, who was born just seconds before his brother... It says that he was a very hairy baby. So I found a picture of what Esau might have looked like as a baby. Um, So pretty cute little guy, right? He's got more facial hair than I'll ever grow in my lifetime. So that's Esau. I'm sure he came out looking like that. Um, (laughs) Just keep that up there for a second. That's hilarious. So after Esau was born, here comes Jacob, his twin, grasping at his brother's heel. And Jacob's name, you can take it down. Jacob's name actually meant um, that he will grasp at the heels. And it was a really accurate title for a man that was going to spend the majority of his life grasping to get ahead in life. Striving to get ahead in life. Um, while at the, really the whole time being just completely unaware of how God was trying to grasp hold of his heart. So the twin boys grow up. And as expected, the hairy Esau, he kind of turns into a man's man, right? He becomes a skillful hunter who slays beasts. Um, His father, Isaac, it says that he loved wild game, which would kind of be like deer and turkey to us. Pretty good stuff. Um, And his father really loved Isaac because of the delicious food that he killed and prepared for him. So he was kind of biased and showed favoritism towards him. Jacob, however, was more of a homebody, right? He was a mama's boy. It said that he, likes to, he liked to stay in the tents. So his wife, um, sorry, so his mom really kind of showed him favoritism, okay, over uh, her other son, Esau. And so as the story plays out, we see that Jacob convinces Esau to sell him his birthright, basically for some soup and bread because he was famished. He thought he was going to die. Now, a birthright at their time, um, what that did was just basically ensure that you would get a double portion of the inheritance from your father. So it was a pretty big deal. That was given to the firstborn son. And so this is the first account that we see Jacob grasping hold, striving to get ahead in life. He could not stand the fact that he was going to receive less of an inheritance than his brother, It just did not seem fair to him. So he took matters into his own hands to obtain his brother's birthright. Now before we continue, pause for a moment. Can you relate to Jacob? Do you sometimes question the cards that have been dealt to you? Do you question the cards that God has allowed to be dealt in your life? Are you afraid of missing out on something? Afraid of not getting ahead? So you take matters into your own hands, manipulating, deceiving, and convincing people in whatever way you're good at to get what you think is rightfully yours. You see, sometimes in these moments, we're tempted to kind of point our finger to God and say, if you're so good, 
why did she betray me? Right? If you're so loving and kind, why did she get that promotion that I know I deserved? If you're so good, why can't my friend get over this sickness that's slowly killing him? And there's obviously a time to lament, right? There's a time to, to lament, to cry out to God. But I think often those types of questions stem from the wrong starting point. Perhaps the better question to ask is this. Why does God do anything for us? Have you ever thought of that? Why does God do anything for us? That's a question to wrestle with. He doesn't owe us anything. And yet he freely extends his grace to us. He gives us hope now and in the future. He forgives us of our sins. Those are just a few of the spiritual blessings. Then we have the blessings of relationship, right? The blessing of living in community with other Christian men, Christian brothers and sisters. Perhaps you've been blessed with a spouse. Maybe God's even given you a child or multiple children. Maybe he's given you the intellectual ability, the physical ability to work a job, to provide for your family. All of that stuff is icing on the cake, okay? He doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe us anything. And basically... All of the pain and the suffering that we experience is a result of our sin or the sins of others. Sometimes it's both, right? We live in a fallen world, a broken world, because we are sinful, selfish people. And yet, in the midst of our brokenness, it's incredible how generous God is in accepting us and loving us regardless of where we've been, regardless of what we've done. Now, if you were to turn your Bible uh, to Genesis 27, just one page over, you'll find another account of Jacob once again striving to get ahead in life. We don't have time to read the story. It's really long. But basically, this time, Jacob, um, with the help of his mother, deceives his father, Isaac, into giving him the blessing that was actually intended for his brother, to giving him kind of the prayer blessing that was intended for Esau. Um, the older son was typically given, you know, the greater blessing because he had the birth, you know, the birthright. He was the older son. And so once again, Jacob didn't want to miss out. I don't want my brother to get a better blessing than me, so I'm going to twist and manipulate and deceive my father into stealing my brother's blessing. And the blessing Jacob got from Isaac was a pretty good one. It was a pretty powerful. He said, may God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness. And may the nations serve you and people bow down to you. Who wouldn't want to be blessed with the earth's riches, right? Or to have people serving you. That's what most humanity strives for, right? Get rich, buy nice things, have people working for your benefit. And it's important to note that these stories are probably the first recorded accounts of identity theft. These are some of the first recorded accounts of identity theft. Two different times, Jacob stole his brother's identity. He was able to get his hands on his birthright, then he stole his brother's blessing in hopes of securing a nice inheritance from their father. And these two stories give proof to the fact that Jacob simply forgot who he was. He forgot who he was. He didn't know his identity. He didn't understand his identity. 
So not only did God probably seem like a stranger to Jacob, but this is interesting. Jacob was also the stranger. Jacob was also the stranger. And he let his desire for material wealth kind of rob him of some of the blessings and the bigger plans that God had for his life. Go ahead and open to Genesis 28. We're going to look at a story of God um, restoring to Jacob his identity of who he is and who the Lord is. This is an account of God speaking to Jacob in a dream. Genesis 28, uh, starting in verse 12. Uh, 12 through 15. It says, He, Jacob, uh, had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So God tells Jacob, I'm the Lord, I am the God of your father Abraham. Jacob, you are the grandson of my great servant Abraham. I'm going to give you and your descendants the land that you are in right now. Your descendants are going to be so numerous, you won't be able to count them, you won't be able to fathom it. And on top of that, all people on earth will be blessed through your offspring. And if you didn't know, from Jacob's offspring would come the Messiah, right? Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And so while Jacob was living in his tunnel vision, being obsessed with getting his father's inheritance, God was trying to get a hold of his heart saying, dude, I have so much more in store for you. This is all you can see. But I have such bigger plans for you. You know he had to be thinking, dude, forget your father's inheritance. Who cares, right? From your offspring will come the son of God who will save mankind from their sins, right? All of humanity, all people for the rest of human history are going to be blessed through your offspring. Jacob forgot who he was. And I think... All of us can relate to him at different times. We can feel like the stranger, forgetting who we are as children of God. We can so easily forget our identity. We even find this in New Testament characters as well. Think about Peter. He thought he knew who he was. He was in a conversation with his disciples, and he says, Lord, I will never deny you. Even if all these other disciples deny you, I will never do it. Jesus said, nah. Actually, tonight, you're going to deny me three different times. Peter thought he knew who he was, but Jesus showed him a different reality. And maybe you're thinking, man, Justin, this sounds good. You know, I believe in God. I believe that he loves me, but what is my identity? I don't know if I fully get the magnitude of it. I'm not sure if I grasp it. I'm glad you asked, okay? If you have staked your life to Christ, here's your identity. Your identity is that even though the depths of your sin is profound, the love of Christ has covered over all of it. 
Christ's righteousness has been placed on you, and you stand before God holy and blameless because of his sacrifice on your behalf. You are no longer a slave to fear. You are Christ's pleasing aroma. You are the light of the world. He will never leave you or forsake you. Your sins are forgiven, and your eternal destiny is secure. And that is just the short list. That's the short list of your identity. You are God's beloved child, and get this, your identity is actually even greater than Jacob's because you have experienced firsthand Christ's forgiveness and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in a way that Jacob was never able to experience in his lifetime. It is incredible. Now, we all have different reasons why we can feel like a stranger forgetting our identity. When things are going pretty well, some of us might be kind of, you know, bent this way. When things are going well, we can kind of put our spiritual lives on cruise control and forget how desperately we need God every day. And little by little, we start to believe, you know what, I think I got this. I can handle this. I can rework, rearrange my life, right? And this way of operating only creates distance between us and God because we forget that every single day we need him. That he's the vine, we are the branches, we cannot live without him. Here's kind of the other side. We can forget our identity when our life seems to be falling apart. Relationships are fractured. You can't seem to see eye to eye with your parents. You can't take it anymore, right? Your teenage son or daughter is rebellious and you're sick of it. Your spouse wants more from you emotionally. Your finances are a wreck. The list goes on and on. And it's in moments like these that we can try to grasp hold like Jacob, right? And do whatever we can, kick, fight, squirm to get our circumstances to line up how we want them to be. We'll go to great lengths to get what we want in life while oftentimes missing the gentle voice of God calling us back to intimacy with him. And here's one of the saddest realities. When we forget who we are, it impacts everyone around us. Every single person is impacted. When Jacob took his brother's birthright and his blessing, we didn't read about it, but it says that his brother Esau held a grudge against him and he set out a plan in his mind to kill his brother. Okay? His relationships were fractured. His whole family was impacted by his pursuit to get ahead through using deceit and manipulation. And the same is true of us. Think about this concept in a marriage relationship, in the context of a marriage. When we forget who we are, our spouse is deeply affected, right? Deeply affected. We can only receive love to the level at which we reveal who we are. Think about that. We can only receive love to the level at which we reveal who we are. If we forget our identity, if we fail to remind ourselves that we are God's beloved children, we won't be able to be our true selves to our spouse. And can we fully give ourselves to someone when we're not even sure who we are? Can we fully give ourselves to someone when we're not sure who we are? And when we forget who we are, it makes us demanding, doesn't it? We demand that our spouse or our best friends affirm us or encourage us when we're desperate or when we're weak. And when they don't, right, we lash out 
their words, their actions of affirmation become something that we have to have just to be okay. And that's a lot of pressure to put on someone, right? Nobody was created to be the ultimate satisfier of our souls. No human being outside of him. And when we forget who we are, we can't really remind others of their identity in Christ. It becomes a lot more difficult, at least. When we live as though we're strangers on earth rather than God's beloved children, we are unable to love and extend grace in the way that only redeemed children of God, secure in who they are, can do. Now I have a question for you guys. Think back over your life for a moment. Think about times when you felt like the stranger, times when you forgot your identity as God's child. How did that impact your life? Who would be so vulnerable? So how did forgetting your identity as God's child impact your life, impact your relationships? Who would be willing to share? Yes. Yeah, that's great. He's saying that he came here to Wellspring for several years and just went through the motions. Um, and he said in the meantime, he just wasn't his true self to his wife and wasn't confident in his identity. And it brought a lot of strife in their marriage. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Anyone else? It's good. He said all he probably heard him. All he ever really wanted was just to be loved, and he would do anything he can to get that, and didn't get it until he was confident in that. Can only come from Christ. Good. You know, my wife Sarah and I were talking this past week. This is pretty interesting. Um, I think this was sparked by an article that she read. Um, kind of how there's this tendency within Christian circles to view Jesus as a cheerleader. And nothing more. Some of you might have seen that kind of going viral, I think, on Facebook. 
I didn't even read it all. Just the title alone was pretty interesting to me. Um, here's kind of how this can flesh itself out. You know, you tell your Christian buddy, man, I like never spend time with God. I'm never praying. I never read the Bible. I just don't have time. And rather than kind of probing around or just being curious or asking questions, our friend, or sometimes maybe we're this person, we just say, hey, it's okay. It's okay. Like, you're busy. Man, raising kids is hard. Your job is really demanding right now. Like, it's okay. Jesus still loves you. He understands. Don't beat yourself up about it. You know, things will get better. (laughs) And while there's obviously some truth to that, There's also something very dangerous in it as well. Yes, we need to be encouraged. Absolutely. 100%. But you know what? Sometimes we need rebuked. Sometimes we need to be flat out called out for our sinful selfishness, for our apathy, whatever it might be in your context. We need rebuked for not allowing um, our lives to be an overflow of what God has done for us. You know, a lot of times I was kind of thinking, we've, we've, we view our spiritual lives as just another segment of all the areas of our lives, right? I got my work life, my family life, my resting time, my hobbies time. Oh, gosh, I just got to make time for Jesus. It doesn't really work that way. Following Jesus is a holistic pursuit, okay? It's a holistic pursuit. Of course, we need solitude. I'm not, I'm not, I'm a pastor. That'd be messed up if I was against solitude and quiet times and devotion. We need that. But following Jesus is a holistic pursuit. So what this kind of looks like and can look like in my life is, you know, when you're putting your child to bed, when you're singing to your baby, it's so easy just to kind of whip your phone out and just look up whatever, sports, Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest. Use that time to turn your phone off and pray. Use that time to read a psalm over your child, right? When you're driving your car, turn the radio off, turn Spotify off, set in silence for 20 minutes. Who cares if that's awkward? Listen to God's voice. Use that time, right? Make the most of it. As you go, as you are going, as you're living your life, is your radar on? God, what do you want to speak to me today as I'm sitting here in this office at this job I'm not really that passionate about, but I know you got something for me. Are we living like that? Are we mindful? God, I don't want to overlook somebody today that maybe you want to use them to speak to me. God, who needs to be encouraged? Are we living like that, mindful? It's a holistic pursuit. Is your life an overflow of what God has done for you? When we have a deep understanding of God's grace and forgiveness, then the natural response of our life should be worship. And if it's not, then somehow we've lost sight of that grace. Somewhere along the way, we have lost sight of the grace that we have received. And guys, I'll be honest, I caught myself... um, doing this in a meeting this week with Pastor Bob, kind of using my circumstances as a cop-out as to why I guess I'm not or wasn't close in relationship with God. He asked me, hey, what have you been taking from the sermon series? And I just said something like, man, I'm just in a hard season of life. I don't really even know what God's speaking to me right now. Or I just said some generic thing like that. Every day feels like a struggle raising small kids. I'm just tired and busy. And he was really nice and gracious to me. And there's obviously grace for hard seasons and our moments of struggles, but something hit me. It's no wonder why God can often feel like a stranger. Of course God's going to seem like a stranger when the only time we prioritize relationship with him is when we're desperate. 
course we're not going to feel close to him. Of course he's going to feel like a stranger when we choose not to be in his word because we're too tired, too busy. Of course he'll seem like a stranger when we're more concerned about how he can help us than being in an intimate relationship with him. Uh, Krish Kandai, I got a great quote from his book, God a Stranger. He said, we are often more interested in the rescue than the rescuer and choose to treat God as a stranger when all is well. Guys, consider this. Imagine if our whole city was flooded. Bad. I mean, we, were, we recently had some flooding, right? And it was bad. Imagine if it was 100 times worse. All of St. Joseph was like 10, 15 feet deep in water, okay? The only way for you to really survive was like you had to climb on your roof, and you could stand on your roof and just touch the water, okay? Imagine if it was that bad. That's some people's realities, right? When a horrible flood hits. Now, imagine you're chilling on your roof and old Billy Bob down the road comes by in his little motorboat. Hey, man, you want a lift? I'll take you to the nearest emergency shelter. Yeah, man, that'd be awesome, right? So old Billy gives you a ride, drops you off at the emergency shelter. You would probably say, hey, thank you, right? Thank you for <laughs> rescuing me, you know? There's probably not going to be many demands on his side, right? He's not going to, like, call you in a week and go, hey, man, remember when I rescued you? Uh, now I need you to come mow my lawn for three months, right? That would be really weird. I mean, maybe somebody would do that, but that would kind of be odd. There's not really demands or expectations. But this rescuer, Jesus Christ, he has demands, doesn't he? He says, come, follow me. Come and die. Come and die to your sinful, selfish hearts. Take up your cross and follow me. And following him is the evidence of the fact that we have been truly rescued. Maybe God's rescued you from a bad situation. He's rescued you from the flood. That's great. But is there a heart change that's taken place inside of you? Is there a change of heart that's taken place inside of you? And of course, there's going to be times throughout our life where God doesn't respond to things as we hoped. Or maybe he allows difficult circumstances to play out longer than we would want. But he sees our lives through the big picture of eternity. He doesn't have limited vision, limited perspective like we do. Perhaps the majority of time God feels like a stranger because we treat him like one until we need him to rescue us from troubling circumstances. Perhaps God feels like a stranger sometimes because we're so prone to forget who we are in him. And so we seek affirmation from others, demanding that they meet our needs, asking them to satisfy our hearts in ways that only God himself can do. And as we come, as we kind of come to a close today, we have to consider where Jacob is at this point in his life and his story. He strayed away from his family. His brother wants to kill him. Things aren't going too well right? Instead of being excited about the blessings that God told him that were coming his way, um, he's separated from his loved ones. He's in strife with them because he took matters into his own hand, trying to get ahead in life. Jacob is struggling. And we can all relate to him at different times, right? Forgetting our identity um, or God feeling like a stranger to us because we're only call on him when we need him. 
it's so easy to be more concerned with the rescue than desiring intimacy with the rescuer. Where has forgetting your identity left you? Where has forgetting your identity left you? Where is turning to God only when you need him left you? For Jacob, it has left him struggling. And I would imagine that's the same for you. It's certainly the same for me. And so we're going to spend our time next week diving deeper into Jacob's life. We'll watch him continue to struggle, wrestling with his identity, and understanding who the Lord really is in his life. Um, lots to learn from Jacob, so I hope you continue to dive in with us. All right, let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for this time. You are so good to us, God. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us, God, for so often just losing track of who we are, God, who you are. Lord, we can get so caught up in the hustle, bustle of life, just trying to get ahead, um, God, that we forget our true identity. Jesus, you have done more for us than we could ever possibly imagine or deserve, God. God, in our response from your work in our life should just be overflowing gratitude into who we are, into the way that we think, and the way that we spend our time, the way that we spend our money, the way that we navigate our relationships, God. So I pray that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation, God. Help us to remind ourselves, whatever that means for us, or whatever's going to be required, God, to remember who we are, God. Help us to press into your heart constantly, every day, God, not just when we need you. Of course, you're going to feel distant from us when that's the only time we draw to you, Lord. God, show us, teach us how much we need you. We need your grace. We need your strength, God. We need your eyes to see life through a proper lens, through a proper perspective, God. Help us to be mindful people, Lord, that just pay attention to what you want to speak to us in just the small moments throughout our day, Lord. You're so good, God, and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.